you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to read together in just a moment, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4 and verse number 12. The subject matter of our passage is heavy. The theme, the topic of these verses is suffering. I have feared in the days leading up to this message and even over the past several weeks looking at first peter what it teaches here that there'll be such distance between what peter is describing in our passage and the typical experience and the comfort and affluence that we enjoy in the western world that peter's words won't land with the kind of weight or gravity that's intended here Suffering is an inevitable part of the human experience. Lost or saved, you will suffer. By the way, there's nothing that promises the alleviation of that problem in the gospel. If you are a believer or if you are an unbeliever, you will, over the course of your life, suffer. Sickness will come. Death will come. Tragedy will inevitably strike. This is even more the case for those of us who love Jesus. The message of the gospel, the invitation of the gospel, is to come to a cross-bearing Savior who bled and died in our place to entrust our soul to him, to take up the cross, and to follow in his footsteps. Built into the message of the gospel is the notion that we are embracing, entering into the very sufferings of Jesus. I have never been able to account for or understand the various misrepresentations of the Christian faith which attempt to eliminate suffering from the Christian experience. I don't, I don't know how you read the Bible and come to such conclusions. I don't know how you read one chapter, let alone one book, and come to the conclusion that what God affords us is the elimination of of suffering in our experience. In fact, the call of the gospel is inviting us into the experience of suffering. This passage teaches not only the inevitability of suffering, it is going to happen for the Christian, but also the necessity of suffering in the Christian experience. Peter's primary point here is to say that suffering will come but when it comes, it will prove beneficial to the believer and to the advancement of his kingdom. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. If you've found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Peter says here, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, 
what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. What I'd like to do this morning is to give you four principles with regards to suffering. Four principles outlined here in Peter's exhortation to the church. If I were to reduce these four principles further, I might note for you that the first two principles deal with our perspectives concerning suffering. What is our outlook? How do we regard suffering when it comes or on the cusp of, in anticipation of? What is our perspective when it comes to suffering? And then the last two principles are about the function of suffering, what suffering does in the life of the believer. Look to verse 12. Peter begins here with dear friends. We talked a bit in weeks past about the family language of First Peter, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, and how it describes this family bond, this kinship that exists among those who've come to faith in Jesus. A bond forged all the stronger by the reality that this community has now been forced to the margins of society. They have become a family all the more and that they've been pushed out from other circles. But Peter uses even more endearing language here. It is as though Peter is saying, lean in, friend. Come close, Christian sufferer. Hear carefully what I'm about to say in this word of exhortation for those who are bearing with real persecution. Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. When it comes to perspective, the first principle we draw from our passage is that we ought not be surprised when suffering comes. Again, suffering is an inevitable part of the human experience for the lost and the saved. But for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, it is part of our earthly experience. It's built into the essence of the gospel, the DNA of who we are. We are a suffering people regarding our life not in this life but living in the full hope and expectation of a life of glory in a kingdom that has come but is yet to come in the fullness of its consummation. Don't be surprised, Peter says, when the fiery ordeal comes, when the trials come, when the hardship comes, when the difficulty comes. Don't be surprised. The language that Peter use, uses here to speak of the trials of life, the hardships of life, the dark days of life is interesting. He says, fiery ordeal. I was reading just last night some back and forth as to what Peter intends, and there are New Testament scholars who would argue that Peter has witnessed the beginnings of Nero's persecution, a persecution during which Christians were flung to poles, hung to poles, lashed to poles, their bodies doused in fuel and lit ablaze to light the way of pagans who were entertaining themselves in the city of Rome by night. And there seems to me no merit to the idea that Peter had experienced or witnessed the beginnings of that kind of persecution. But the very fact that this is an option for interpretation reminds us of the severity of persecution that was likely to be experienced by those within Peter's congregation. 
There is some similarity in our experience and that of the Apostle Peter's congregation in that this congregation had yet to experience persecution at that level. But the signs were there, the signs of the times, the indicators that that was the trajectory of their culture were all around them. Later, Peter will say, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, they're at the beginning phase, those initial steps towards severe persecution, the kind of persecution that would break out in full in the years to come, had only now begun to be experienced. Peter is readying them for the fullness of persecution that is only months and years ahead for them. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes, Peter says. Don't be surprised, it comes among you to test you, and don't be surprised as if something unusual were happening to you. Already in verse 12, Peter is indicating that these trials serve to test the genuineness of our faith, a concept dealt with in a fuller way later in our passage. It's just a normal part of the Christian experience that we would suffer. If you don't settle that in your heart, if you, if, you don't, if you don't let that get way down into the marrow of your bones, if, if you allow that this celebrity Christian ideal that seems so prevalent in our society, if you don't get this right in your heart, then no matter what you say with your mouth or no matter how often you hear suffering is a part of the Christian experience, you're just going to flip out when it comes. And we say this and we say this, we rehearse this in our heart. But we really have in American Christianity this mentality that if we'll just follow Jesus, if we'll just be faithful, then all of our lives will turn out like Tim Tebow. We'll be big and strong and handsome. We'll be pretty people. We'll have big contracts. We'll make lots of money. We'll have big homes. Things will be glorious for us. It'll just be good. Listen, I love Tim Tebow, but my life is not headed in that direction. And for every Tim Tebow in the kingdom of God, there are millions and millions of anonymous, unnamed believers who die to see the kingdom of Jesus advanced and who suffer on a continual basis for their insistence that Jesus Christ is Lord. Rid your mind of the notion of celebrity, comfortable Christianity. Embrace the reality that following in the footsteps of Jesus means to embrace with all of our heart the very real likelihood that suffering will be a considerable part of our existence. Peter says, don't be surprised. Verse 13, he says, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. So with regards to perspective, these are the two principles. Number one, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. It's going to happen. And number two, when it comes, rejoice. This is consistent with the teaching of the New Testament in general. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials and tribulations. Jesus again and again reminds us to rejoice when the hardships and the difficulties come. Paul exhorts the church at Rome that the sufferings of the present age aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Again and again and again, we're reminded that regardless of our circumstances, we are to rejoice. Even in the Apostle Paul's imprisonment, he would say to the church at Philippi, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. 
Peter here reminds the church that they are blessed, that they ought to rejoice as they share in the sufferings of the Messiah. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Rejoice that you've been counted worthy to share in his sufferings. There's a couple of things that I think are at work behind what's stated here in verse number 13. There's there's a measure of affirmation that comes with suffering for the cause of Christ. When you suffer in Jesus' name, there's no cause to despair, but a great feeling of, of affirmation that something, something, something is right If our life is patterning after that of Jesus who suffered greatly, not only at the cross, but over the duration of his life, surely we're on the right track. Within Peter's context, in order to suffer for the cause of Christ, to be worthy of the name, you had to be identified by your conduct as a Christian Perhaps the reason for so much of an absence of Christian persecution in the Western world is that there just aren't a lot of us who by our conduct are identifiable as followers of Jesus. Rejoice that you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, that your life is taking its shape, patterned after that of the one who bled and died for us. Now there's something really important here about what Peter says in the close of verse 13, because it sets the tone for a kind of tricky passage later in our text. Peter says again in verse 13, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. And with that, Peter turns the attention of the passage toward the final judgment, the second coming of Jesus, the full revelation of Christ In his glory. Rejoice now in your sufferings that your life is taking shape around the model of that of Jesus, so that on the last day, standing before the judgment bar of God, you may rejoice in the fullness of joy at the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, the Bible says, If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Peter says, if you suffer for the cause of Christ, you are blessed. And he learned it from Jesus, who said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. When suffering comes, You are blessed. In this upside-down kingdom kind of way, you are blessed by the presence of suffering in your life. But there's something else here in verse 14. He says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. God is near those who suffer in Jesus' name. Now, you've had occasion to experience this in all likelihood in your personal life. Not suffering so much for Jesus' name but suffering in that way that is common to to the basic human experience. Haven't you experienced that God is ever near in the most powerful of ways, in the hospital room 
When the diagnosis is bad at the funeral home, at the graveside, when tragedy strikes, God draws near. There's a special anointing, a, a comfort, a peace that passes all comprehension when suffering comes. But here Peter would indicate that when we suffer in Jesus' name, there's a special anointing of the Spirit. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There are all these moments in our journey with Jesus when it seems that God is pleased to lavish us with the presence of his spirit. I would note here that evangelism is one such occasion. Jesus said, fear not when you stand before kings and princes, for I'll give you the words to speak. The spirit of God is the channel through which God gives us the words to speak. And haven't you experienced in evangelism how God is often pleased to say more and to do more than you have the capacity to communicate or express? Here Peter notes for us that when beyond our physical capacity to bear with the persecution that he sees as inevitable for us, the Spirit of God attends our suffering, anointing us, granting unction in the moment. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on the sufferer who suffers in Jesus' name. Verse 15, Peter returns to a common theme in the previous two chapters and reinforces again this notion. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Again, Peter wants to, to guard against us ever doing anything within society that would sully the good name of the Christian community. Make sure that if you suffer, you suffer for the cause of Christ, for the message of the gospel, and not because you're a big fat jerk. Make sure that you're not doing things in your life that create conflict, controversy, or even outright persecution. Make sure that if you're going to suffer, you suffer as a direct result of your conviction and commitment to the axiom that Jesus Christ is Lord. May that be the cause of our suffering. But if you look into persecution in virtually any area of the world, you'll find that mixed and mingled together, with a hatred for Christianity is, is a motive directed at the poor decisions or choices that many of those who've found themselves at the point of the spear have made along the way. This has to be a continual concern for us. I cannot press enough how serious this is that we would guard the reputation of the gospel, of the church, of the Christian community. And again and again and again, we sort of lose sight of this in the moment, wrapped up in culture wars and the pressing of agendas that although incredibly important, do not supplant the primary position of the message of the gospel. And if we're not careful in our efforts, though good intended they may be, we will sully the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ and inhibit our ability to see the kingdom of Christ advanced. Whether it be in the most violent of examples, as in the case of murder, or in the more respectable sin of meddling, make sure that you keep your hands clean of the business of this world. If you're going to suffer, may it be for the cause of Christ. Peter calls upon us to suffer, and to suffer gladly for what is right. Now in verse 16, there's a transition here away from perspective don't be surprised and rejoice, to now helping us to understand something of the function 
of suffering in the life of the Christian. Look at verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. Glorify God in that outsiders have observed your manner of life, and they have been able, by virtue of your conduct, to identify you as a follower of Jesus. I, I just have to wonder again here. If we, if we were if we were to call outsiders to testify against us in our personal life, whether we might be found guilty of following Jesus or not, whether much would be found about our experience that would mark us off from the world around us. Don't be ashamed when suffering comes, should it come in the name of Christ. Verse 17 says, for the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. Think of this for a moment. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. Peter's alluding to here this idea of judgment beginning at the core of the covenant community in the Old Testament and then expanding out. For instance, when the judgment of God came against the nation of Israel, it began at the temple. Peter's here leveraging the language of living stones and the building up of a spiritual house in 1 Peter in chapter number 1. He says it's time that judgment began with the household of God. When God moved against the nation of Israel in judgment, he began at the temple with the Levitical priesthood and then moved out to the elders and in concentric circles moved out until the whole of the nation of Israel had come under God's great judgment. But what of us as followers of Jesus, having taken our refuge under the blood of Jesus, how is it that judgment in that sense might be appropriate for us? The answer is that it's not. Peter has something altogether different in view. Peter is not saying that acts of persecution committed against you are the judgment of God against you for your acts of disobedience, even as a Christian. Peter is building on this look in, in the passage alluded to already toward the final judgment. Peter's saying it's time that the final judgment began at the household of God. Now, in the final judgment, the all-seeing and all-discerning eye of God will call the dead together, lost and saved. And there the Bible says that the believers and the unbelievers will be separated one from another. But it's not only that believers and unbelievers will be separated. It is that within the group of professing Christians... The all-seeing and all-discerning eye of God will separate the true from the false. Jesus speaks of the separation of sheep and goats, the separation of wheat and tares, the separation of the true from the false. Peter doesn't have in view this scenario in which people come before the judgment bar of God and God says, unbelievers, raise your hands, and then they put theirs down. And God says, believers, raise your hands, and they raise them up, and one group goes to heaven and one group goes to hell. The idea here is that we are, as a people, being called before God, and the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-discerning eye of God is making judgment in a court that knows no technicality. 
In a court that, that knows no exception, no qualification, no shortcuts, no high-powered defense attorney will get you out when you stand before this measure of, of judgment. God will be able to determine the true believer from the false believer. You may feign obedience and righteousness over the duration of your life, but the all-seeing God sees all. The all-knowing God knows all, and the all-discerning God discerns well with precision. Now, when Peter says here, it's time that that judgment begins at the house of God. What he's saying is that the presence of suffering, specifically suffering by persecution, is the starting point of the discernment between the true and the false the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats. We look at our situation and, and we almost always speak in negative terms, even within my lifetime, which is, I would have you to note, a very short lifetime. Even within my lifetime, we have observed with our eyes the death of cultural Christianity. When I was a child, it was a socially beneficial thing in the South to be affiliated with a local church. And it might change from community to community. There might be one denomination a bit more popular than the other. You may have a Methodist community over here and a Baptist community over here and a Presbyterian community over here. But, but it was, without exception, beneficial to you to be affiliated in some way with the church. All that has changed. We are witnessing the death of cultural Christianity. In fact, I would say cultural Christianity, for all intents and purposes, is dead. And we see things like that and the shift in norms and values that comes with those kinds of cultural trends or changes as something altogether negative. But I want you to know that there are tremendous positives here. And that it's one among many means God is using to separate the wheat from the chaff. I hear people talk about millennials and Gen Zs, the younger generations, as though they have horns growing from their head. And I'll confess, listen, I'll confess, there are fewer by percentage professing Christians within those generation, within those two generations, but you give me a dozen Gen Zs who love Jesus, and I will charge the gates of hell with them at my side. Because their faith in Christ has been tested and tried and proven, pressed against by the culture. They have, they have sought to be indoctrinated by a world around us given to perversion at every term. They have been bombarded again and again and again with anti-Christian thought, with pushback against their values. And over the course of time, God has forged in their heart a deep and abiding conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord and they will die for that conviction. What Peter is describing here is a separating of sheep and goats that inevitably comes when suffering comes. You let persecution begin to break out. You'll find out quickly who's in and who's out. You let the very real threat of bodily harm present itself. And it won't take long for the wheat to separate itself from the chaff. The very judgment, the precision with which God will judge the true from the false on the last day has visited us in the present day through the act of persecution. 
What Peter is saying is that in a way that's often underappreciated, if not altogether unappreciated, is that suffering and persecution are ultimately good for the church. Now, the acts of your persecutors are unquestionably evil, immoral, sinful, and wrong. I think about, I think about Genesis 50 and 20. I can't tell you how often I go back to that verse in my mind and wonder how it is that God is at work in the world. Joseph is there with his brothers. Jacob, their father, has died. And they believe that Joseph will now repay them for the evil they did him in times past. And Joseph's response is, what you intended for good, God intended for evil. The evil, ungodly, sinful, and immoral actions of your persecutors are superintended by God for holy, noble, and righteous purposes that your benefit might be served and that his name might be greatly praised. This is what Peter intends. Indeed, it is time that judgment would begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? He's arguing from lesser to greater. If there is judgment... Punishment of hell for those who feign righteousness in life, who profess with their mouth while their heart is far from God. If they would at least have the shame and decency over the course of their life to pretend it's something they were not. How much worse will the fate of those be who have overtly, openly, blatantly, with boldness defied the message of the gospel? In verse 18, Peter, citing Proverbs eleven thirty one, 31, says, If a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, the terminology of saved here, and there's some tricks that are going on. Peter is citing a Greek translation of a Hebrew passage that you find in Proverbs eleven thirty one. but there are some shifts and turns along the way, and Peter seems to cast the proverb in a way that in some ways serves his purposes here. But what he's not saying is that it's hard for a person to be saved in the sense of salvation. It's not hard for a person to be saved. You don't try to be saved. You don't labor to be saved. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. In fact, we might say it is hard for us to be saved. Our salvation came at a, at a great price, at the price of, of his blood shed for us. What he's speaking of here is the kind of, perse the, the kind of perseverance through persecution that, res that, that results from salvation. When you're truly saved, the Bible says that you persevere. You persevere. You run the race of faith well and you finish the race of faith well. But that becomes all the more difficult when persecution arises in our experience. What Peter's saying here is that it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to persevere in the face of persecution. Jesus said, listen, Jesus said concerning the great tribulation that for the sake of the elect, he would shorten those days which by implication should, should at least suggest to us that were those days not shortened, persecution in its heightened form would lead to some faithful, true believers denying their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think, I think there's a great danger for us because I hear this kind of thing all the time. We pop off. 
like we're going to be the next hero Christian, right? We're finding our place in Fox's Book of Martyrs. If persecution comes, I will stand fast. No matter what comes my way, I will be firm. I will, I will show firm resolve and I'll be faithful. No matter if they take my life, no matter what they do, even if some danger came to my family, I would persist persevering in my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You better be cautious about overestimating your resolve. That's easy to talk about with so much distance between you and I and very real suffering and hardship. There are some parallels that exist between Peter's congregation and ours. I began by expressing some concern that the distance was so great we wouldn't feel the gravity of these verses. But Peter seems to be preparing a group of people who've only now come to a place of being ridiculed for their faith before they get to a place of real severe physical persecution. We're now in post-Christian or pre-Christian America, depending on how you regard our place in history. But in virtually every precinct of our society, you can find ways of being persecuted in the sense that you can be ridiculed for your faith. The trajectory is not a positive one for us. And you had better find some resolve the conviction now on, in the good days, during the good times, to be able to be ready to find the ability to bear with the suffering that inevitably comes. Those dark days come. And if your theological moorings are not well stable, if your heart hasn't been well founded in the notion that God is absolutely sovereign, that he is absolutely good, and that even when his hand can't be traced, he is at work for our good and glory. If you have not fully detached yourself from the things of this world and fixed your heart on the things of heaven, you may find that the dark days are just more than you're able to bear. Verse 19, the Bible says here, so those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Come to regard verse 19 in a little different way than perhaps I had in the past. A couple of things stand out here. Number one, suffering comes as a part of God's will for us. The presence of suffering in your life may not be evidence of God's departure, but of his intimate presence. So that those who suffer according to God's will, Peter says, should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. It, it is that we're called upon in the passage when the dark days come to entrust ourselves to him. But at the same time, Perseverance is the expression of the act of entrusting ourselves to him. When you persevere in the faith and when you persevere in your confession, and in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about persevering, it's talking about persevering in the confession that Jesus is Lord. There are two alternatives, Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. And the call to perseverance is to persevere in the confession that Jesus is Lord. And the willingness to make that confession may mean life or death, but persevere. If you're looking for action items from verse number 19, what is it that this verse calls us to do? 
It, it is that on the dark day, we persevere in our confession that Jesus is Lord. And with gladness in our heart, we rejoice in, we embrace with both of our arms whatever the outcomes of our confession might be for us. We throw caution to the wind and we persevere in Jesus and we embrace even the cross, even death by persecution because Jesus is enough for us. The verse appears to indicate the difficulty of knowing anything about the sincerity of our faith unless or until we suffer. We're able to measure, to test, and try our faith when the hardship comes. If the default position of your heart, if the knee-jerk reaction of your soul, if the spinal response of your heart is to run to Jesus under great duress, that's a great sign for you. But if your reaction is to take things into your own hands, to lean into natural means and methods for your rescue, there's a very low likelihood that you will persevere in the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator. All of this is predicated on a wholehearted understanding of the message of the gospel. I'm going to give a shameless plug for upcoming event here and close our message. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do a Sunday evening on the resurrection. It's a point academy. Most of our point academies until now have been about Bible interpretation. This is going to be a little bit different, and we're going to look at resurrection from a variety of different, different perspectives, what it says about resurrection in the Bible, what the resurrection of Jesus means for us, what, what, what the resurrection of, of Jesus is really all about, what is the doctrine of, of resurrection. So I've been preparing for this meeting for quite some time. Bible interpretation is my thing. I just sort of get ready the week before, and then we're ready to roll. But this is kind of a field all its own. Here's an observation from my preparation for that forthcoming Point Academy just a couple of weeks ahead that I find to be immensely helpful. There is a greater sensitivity to the promise of our physical resurrection in the New Testament than exists within the 21st century Western church. We don't think of life after death in terms of our physical resurrection the way those within the period of the New Testament seemed to think of physical resurrection. We think of this sort of disembodied spiritual state, and it's true that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the very moment of our death, we will be with Jesus in heaven. But the Bible says that in the twinkling of an eye and with the sounding of the trumpet, this physical body will be raised from the ground and restored to my spiritual existence in Jesus to live glorified forever. Even as we discuss that, because of the way we think of things in terms of systems, it seems far off and distant, doesn't it? Death happens in an instant. We think of that passage, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Again, we're already thinking of this disembodied, ghostly kind of experience in heaven with Jesus. But the physical resurrection for believers within the period of the New Testament functioned in a radically different way. They might say in the face of the emperor Nero, who had the power to take their life, you come get this body if you want it, Nero. 
But make no mistake, God will give it back in the resurrection. You, you may take this body. You may push me to the margins. You may rob my earthly life of the kind of earthly pleasure I would otherwise enjoy. But make no mistake about it. This mortal body living in corruption will be raised in the resurrection and immortality and incorruptibility. You take this life if you will. But God will give it back through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's a very real sense in which this feeling of invincibility exists within the New Testament community such that they were willing to risk life and limb. You take it away because God will give it back tenfold and it will never be taken away again. This is how we regard suffering. This is how we regard persecution. This is how we regard this earthly life. In the good days or the bad, we acknowledge this is all passing away. But what we might forego in the here and now, what might be robbed of us today, God will give back tenfold in the resurrection. You can take my health. You can take this life. You can take my body. But God will give it back in immortality on the last day. This is the hope of the gospel. It's what Peter has reference to. And it's what Jesus invites us to embrace and believe with all of our hearts. Know the spirit of invincibility that comes with being a subject of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, for the principles of this passage. God, I, I pray that you would continue to do a sanctifying work in your church, this church, and the church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism church. God, I, I pray that as you work through persecution and suffering to separate sheep from goats and wheat from tares, that the efficiency, the power of the church would all the while be increased. God, I, I pray that you would give us the kind of perspective on suffering that Peter describes in our passage. Give us such an otherworldly outlook that we would truly rejoice in various trials and tribulations. In Jesus' name, amen.